Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2016, volume 54, number 7. My name is David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month is titled, Dare We Think the Unthinkable? So what is the unthinkable we're daring to think? So we're looking here at the deficit in the NHS, this uh, £25 billion uh, savings that's required over the next five years. And we're looking at whether there is a part to be played from local CCGs, looking at drug budgets, looking at what is prescribed by clinicians and perhaps blacklisting some of these treatments. So haven't we been squeezing savings out of prescribing budgets for years? Well, I think we have. And of course, compared to some of our colleagues internationally, actually the UK is a very efficient prescriber. We are, I think, about £100 per patient less than most uh, European nations and obviously even less so than the the USA. And we have a history of of prescribing efficiency schemes, looking at areas where we can make savings. So is the argument now that we must look at areas that we haven't even thought of before? I think this is it. I think uh, there's a feeling that really the efficiencies have been made. Most uh, practices now have really effective uh, management teams who are looking continually at every aspect of their prescribing. And there really is very little more to be squeezed from that. So the question is, emollients, um, gluten-free products, should they still be prescribed by the NHS? And is this a national initiative or is this led by individual CCGs? Well, this is one of the great paradoxes of the National Health Service, of course, is that since budgets have been um, put down to grassroots level, of course, you do have all this going on in localities and regions rather than at a national level. So individual organisations coming up with individual schemes to help save money for their area. So, of course, postcode prescribing is extended even further? Exactly. So you have postcode prescribing at uh, at that level. Of course, the other issue you have is you have the primary secondary care divide. So the risk is that secondary care look to make savings perhaps by um, reducing the amount of uh, TTOs when patients are discharged, or perhaps they even say, there's even talk about in some areas asking patients to bring in their own analgesia for day surgery. And of course, the risk there is that the cost simply moves from secondary care to primary care. And I guess the point we're trying to make in this editorial is not only would it be helpful to have a national series of plans that have been thought through and implemented nationally, so it's not devolved to local areas to come up with different schemes, but have people really thought through the cost effectiveness of these initiatives and are there unintended consequences? I think that's it. I think the unintended consequences are always the issues. And if you squeeze the bar of soap, it it pops out somewhere else. And, And I think the other thing that's perhaps missing from this is actually a dialogue with the general public about what shape, size, how do they want the NHS to look and feel and and what do they think it should cover and what they think it shouldn't. So we have very good systems for introducing and assessing new treatments and evaluating them nationally. So we get national must-dos in terms of new drugs, new interventions with all the cost-effectiveness and consultation processes behind it same is we can't say the same for decommissioning precisely so you have this system where you're constantly adding to the therapeutic armamentarium but we're never taking very much out of it okay thank you very much our first main article reviews empagliflozin an anti-diabetic drug that's been around for a couple of years 
but we're particularly interested in the light of a fairly recent major clinical study that's been published that looks at some interesting outcomes with this drug. So let's go back to basics. What is empagliflozin? So SGLT2 inhibitors are sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. Um, These are proteins found in the proximal tubule which are responsible for reabsorbing glucose. And uh, so these SGLT2 inhibitors prevent that absorption of glucose. So you end up, in effect, having glycosuria. You, you urinate sugar um, if you're diabetic. And uh, this uh, has obviously an impact on the glucose load for the body. This isn't the only drug in this class. There are two others licensed. So the now this makes it three in total. So we've been available since 2014. So first question about what does it do to your blood glucose? The good, the good thing about these, this class of drugs, as you say, we've got three now, um, dapagliflozin, canagliflozin, and now empagliflozin, and they all reduce HbA1c. And as a consequence, too, of the fact that you are probably losing about 200 calories um, because of the glycosuria, you also see loss of weight in these patients taking these drugs. So they do what we'd expect them to do, lower your blood glucose. But in this particular case, what we're interested in is a recent trial. What was the population? Yeah, so this was a this was an interesting cardiovascular outcome study. It was a randomized controlled trial of about 7,000 type 2 diabetics. But they were a very particular group. These were patients who had a history of cardiovascular disease, an MI, stroke, unstable angina, or peripheral vascular disease. So this was a high-risk group of patients. And they were given empagliflozin or placebo? Placebo, that's right. Placebo-controlled trial. Non-inferiority, though. So it's a slightly unusual design uh, in the sense that the main process was to demonstrate non-inferiority to, to placebo. And the primary outcome? Yes, yeah, so this was one of these studies which had a very, which had a very complicated uh, primary outcome, a sort of composite mix of death from cardiovascular um, causes plus non-fatal MIs and non-fatal strokes. So perhaps we should say at this point that up to now, the only drug that's shown clear clinical endpoints for cardiovascular, macrovascular outcomes is metformin. This is it, yeah. Nothing else has shown anything similar, although all the new anti-diabetic drugs have to show that they don't increase cardiovascular risk. Here we have a drug that maybe for the first time shows a change in cardiovascular outcome. So what was the outcome? So this was it. So as you quite rightly say, since there have been concerns about cardiovascular risk, all drugs now um, being licensed by the FDA in the States have to demonstrate non-inferiority to placebo for harms in effect is what they're doing. And so this looked at these this, this primary outcome and they found that in the intervention group, about 10.5% of the population had uh, uh, died or had um, non-fatal MI or non-fatal card, uh, stroke, and that was compared to 12 and a, 12.1% in the placebo group, and that was significant for non-inferiority and significant for superiority as a p-value of 0.04. Now, you can look at that another way. The number needed to treat for about two to three years, because that's how long the study lasted for, um, to prevent one of those primary outcomes was 63 so a lot of people are getting very excited about this. So, because not only did it show the primary endpoint 
composite endpoint. Also, all-cause mortality was reduced. That's it. So there was also some of the secondary outcomes. There was an all-cause mortality reduction too. Now, do we think this is a direct effect of its anti-diabetic effect? Is this cool? is this an effect on atherosclerosis, or is something else going on? Well, this is of course this is the interesting issue here. You know what's going on here. Obviously, this is one study. It's a well-designed study. Seven thousand patients. Obviously, a very significant group of patients. So these are not your typical uh, non-insulin-dependent diabetics. But the fact is, you know, they noticed this outcome in just three years. And the question is, how did that happen? It's unlikely to be through an atherosclerotic reduction. You know, is it due to the fact that these drugs reduce blood pressure because of their slight diuretic effect? Is that an issue? Or, you know, what else is going on here? But this, this obviously this is a significant uh, finding which has really raised everyone's eyebrows and got everyone quite excited about the possibility that we might have a drug here which might actually have an impact in good, hard outcomes. Any reservations? Well, of course we have reservations. First of all, we say this is one study. But also, there were some sort of slight oddities here. So, for example, if you try, if you compare the drug doses, um, 10 milligrams is the starting dose or the basic dose, and 25 milligrams is the other dose for this drug. And if you split those two groups up, you couldn't demonstrate any significant effect on the primary outcome for each of those doses. It was only the combined um, treatment versus placebo that you could demonstrate that outcome. And we also know that there have been some concerns raised by both the MHRA and the European Medicines Agency over diabetic ketoacidosis with this group of drugs. Yes, this is, this is a strange outcome. Clearly, you normally expect diabetic ketoacidosis to occur in patients with very high glucose levels in their bloodstream, but uh, it does seem that these uh, drugs are associated with an atypical diabetic ketoacidosis where the blood sugar level isn't very high. The other big issue with these drugs is clearly because you are urinating sugar, it does have an effect on infection risk, um, particularly things like genital infections. And uh, these this can occur uh, quite frequently in these groups, uh, this, these groups of drugs. And so our overall feeling about this? Yes, yeah, so I think we, we, you know, there's cause for, for some uh, celebration here in the sense that we have a, a new set of drugs, which if this ends up being a class effect, um, really will help us manage diabetes. But as always, uh, new drugs, possible long-term side effects not yet known. Uh, we wait and see where this drug ends up in the armamentarium in future. So encouraging, but watch this space. Indeed. Okay, and our final article this month looks at, or is a reminder of, multivitamin supplementation in pregnancy. Um, why have we chosen to do this article? So um, we looked at a number of issues coming up, and quite interestingly, there's been a lot of discussion around folic acid supplementation of foodstuffs, and uh, this was triggered uh, in December 2015 by a study that suggested that um, perhaps as many as 2,000-year-old tube defects could have been prevented if foods had been supplemented in the UK. So this is something which is very current. And I think the other side of the coin is that we are increasingly bombarded uh, in the media and commercially by all kinds of vitamin supplementation. And the question is, you know, what, what should women be taking and what is not necessary? And let's see if we can look at this right across the board and give people a clear indication of what is important and what isn't. So when you look along the shelves of vitamin supplements, you can see all sorts of very complex multivitamin preparations which appear to be for every stage of life. 
Indeed. every stage of preconception, conception, pregnancy. So we're trying to distill down what are the must-haves against and what is the evidence to support them. Exactly right. And actually what, what's quite staggering when you look at the evidence is actually there's probably just one must-have. Which is? Folic acid. Folic acid. And that, it's very interesting, this, because you can't really get the levels you need to prevent neural tube defects with unfortified diet. So it's got to be either fortified diet or you need to take a supplement. And the difficulty with folic acid is you need to take it from conception. And uh, we know that about 50% of all uh, pregnancies are actually unplanned and therefore um, a lot of uh, women are not taking uh, folic acid supplementation at the time of conception. But that's the, that's the big issue. 400 micrograms a day um, seems to be the dose that's required. Ever since, there was a big landmark study in 1991 by the MRC that, that really demonstrated this perfectly. But women are still not taking folic acid who should be taking it. And a lot of women are taking a lot more, as you said, of different vitamins and, and micro um, nutritional supplements which have got probably no real value for them. So we use the article to explore or revisit the folic acid, which is a fairly well-known story now, and then other vitamins that we review. So vitamin D is the other one, which of course is is really much in the news. There's been a big concern about instance increased instance of rickets, and about a third of women probably are vitamin D deficient at any one time. So it has a that there is a a good argument to be made that women should have vitamin D supplementation. Uh, during pregnancy. There's also evidence that if you look at factors that will determine whether a child in their first year develops rickets or other problems, it is down to the maternal levels of vitamin D that they have during pregnancy. The interesting thing, though, of course, is that if you try and demonstrate that through studies, there's enormous heterogeneity amongst the studies, very difficult to pick it all out, and that's probably because of the seasonal issue around vitamin D levels in, in women and also actually just the status of, of different women um, and their vitamin D levels. But overall, what we struggled with is, is really solid evidence for many of the other vitamins to see where they should, should fit yeah, in. Yeah, so although, the, you know, that's absolutely right. So we have, you know, there is a little bit of evidence around vitamin D. And interesting enough, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists suggests, for example, women who are at risk of preeclampsia should take a slightly higher level of vitamin D supplementation. But when you start looking at vitamin C and E and, um, of course, vitamin A, which, of course, is uh, teratogenic, the evidence for benefit from these vitamins is really simply completely lacking. So focusing on, on those vitamins which are the, the must-haves and avoiding perhaps some of these complex multivitamin preparations that for most women who have a balanced diet, there is no need. Precisely, and I think given how expensive... Everyone talks about children being, you know, there's some huge savings to be made here. And yet, you know, there's no impact on your health outcomes. OK, thank you very much. To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future content, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.